Hi, I'm JD. I'm Peterson. This is Spencer. And we're the 3-Bit Gamer Show, where we fight about video games. No, we don't. Yeah, we really do. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at 3-Bit Gamer Show. Pants are optional. Hi there, hi there. Welcome to the podcast. You're about to hear a conversation that I had with Ben Williams. Ben is a a fascinating guy, an interesting guy. He's a a historian, and he's a gay man, and he does gay history. People always uh, have said to me, if you want to know anything about the gay history of Salt Lake, particularly in Utah in general, Ben Williams is your guy. So finally, I got a chance to sit down and talk to him. But one thing that we, we left out of the podcast, and I And I didn't quite know how to ask him about it, but I guess when I was interviewing him, but we talked about it after the podcast was recorded, and that was uh, the infamous story of Paul Lind being arrested at a gay bar here in Salt Lake City. Some of you may not remember who Paul Lind is or was. He was was really a pretty funny guy, a very funny uh, comedian, came across as being pretty gay. He was uh, apparently an alcoholic. I think he first came into uh, prominence as, I think his character was Uncle Arthur on the old Bewitched show. And he was really funny. And then he was on the Hollywood squares for years and years and years. And he was always the center square. And many of his answers on the Hollywood squares were very gay answers. And the one I remember the most was, (laughs) they said, Paul, yes. Of 10 men, random men walking down the street, how many of them are likely to be wearing boxer shorts? There was a long pause, and Paul said, seven. Trust me. <laughs> and I just, I just always thought that was a very funny and very gay joke. Uh, anyway, he was a regular on the Donnie and Marie television show. And that show was filmed here in Utah every every week uh, down in Orem at the big studio complex they had down there. And uh, that, But then Paul would come up here to Salt Lake and go to the gay bars. And I forget the circumstances that Ben said. He, his car had gotten broken into while he was up here at one of the gay bars. And uh, he called the police about it because something had been stolen from out of his car. And I guess he copped a bad attitude with the police and... Uh, one thing led to another, and they ended up arresting him. I believe, well, I don't know what the charge was, actually. Uh, and then he was he was immediately fired by Donnie and Marie because it, it came out that he'd been at this gay bar and that he'd been kind of drunk and abusive and mean to the police. So that story didn't make the podcast, but there it is for you now. And now, without further ado, let's get to it. Here's gay historian Ben Williams. I think so. That's good? Yes. All right. So um, I met you, and and we are now rolling, I would assume, right? Yeah. I've met Ben Williams on, I don't know, a few occasions here and there at various functions, and um, always knew you, Ben Williams, as a writer for Q Salt Salt Lake, Lake. Q Salt Lake, which is the LGBT uh, publication here in town and been around for quite a while that publication hasn't it? since uh 2004 yeah uh and and so and then and, and somebody said to me oh ben writes that but he's all you know he's a historian of gay culture in salt lake and probably knows more about it than anybody in town 
how thanks for being here by the way you're welcome how did it come about that you became the official chronicler of gay gay history in in Salt Lake and in Utah in general is it or? Uh, yeah I do a lot of Utah history I'm not a native and therefore I probably know more about Utah than most natives do and I yeah. definitely know more about the gay and lesbian community or the LGBT which community which I kind of still have a hard time wrapping my tongue around because I'm old. You're 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 <laughs> you're an old old line gay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, for me gay was just totally all inclusive at one time, so I I still kind of use do you, it. Do, I mean, do you even remember back to a time where it wasn't even gay? It was you uh, you were homosexual. That's um uh, if they were being polite, <laughs> you know. If you know, yeah. When I graduated from high school in 1969, the year the mm-hmm. Stonewall uh erupted and uh, I never really heard the word homosexual mm-hmm. uh, at, in high school or anything I mostly heard queer mm-hmm. queer or sissy mm-hmm. um, even the old words like pansy and f- once in a while you'd hear a fruit you know? fruit you know yeah you my know? my mother told one of the first jokes I ever remember my mother telling me was a joke about a gay guy and it was at the you know Fruit, and that was the fruit. Yeah, it was a fruit. fruit. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, anything that was fruity or flowery or something mm-hmm. like that, or queer or different or or mm-hmm. um, effeminate, mm-hmm. sissy, sissy. Like, yeah. You know, those kind of things were, um, and those are all the things I didn't want to be. <laughs> you know, well, even though I was. <laughs> you, well, I, uh, so I asked you about how you became the chronicler, but let's let's put that aside for a second. Let's go back in in time a little bit to where you grew up. I grew up in Orange County, Orange County, Cal- in California. Where, and uh, when uh, when did you know that you were gay? People don't believe this when I say this, but. Because, you know, gay is a construct. So, of course, I didn't know that as a construct at the time. But I knew I liked boys more than I liked girls mm-hmm. when I was three years old. Yeah. You know? No, I believe that. You know, I mean, I really actually, I mean, I liked girls, mm-hmm. but not attracted to them. And all through your budding sexuality in junior high and things like that, it was something I was always kind of ashamed of or kind of hiding it or wish it would go away because... The gym teachers were always more attractive to me than, than, you know, any of the girls. And I never went to any proms. I never dated. I never did any of those things because it just didn't feel natural to me. No, I I believe that entirely. You know, I grew up uh, with a, there was a a kid in my neighborhood who I was really close to. We were very good friends. Um, I used to go over to his house and play all the time, maybe from the time we were six or seven. I went all through uh, elementary school with him, junior high with him, high school with him. And at somewhere along that the line there, I realized, oh, my friend Dirk is, is I don't know what I would say to myself at that time, is a homosexual. Mm-hmm. I never realized that. You know, and I mean, it, I just it didn't bother me or I but I just because we were really close when we were young and there and and then I look I go back and I look at all my old class pictures where everybody in the and even from like the second grade it's clear that Dirk (laughs) he's standing there with all the other and he's just he's you know he's he's different well I was artistic artistic yeah Dirk was very artistic as well and And what and a great guy I mean just the most I still think of all this the wonderful sweet 
things he did for people. You know, a couple of years ago, um, I got in contact with some of my uh, alumni from my high school. And this girl I hadn't seen probably in 40 years. She wrote back and she said, oh, I remember you. You were always so sweet and respectful of the girls you were. And I was, you know, because I wasn't sexually interested. I never tried anything with them. I was a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so when did, and then when did you uh, did did you formally at some point come out to people and say you know and to yourself and say well I I fell in love with a boy in high school uh, my senior year in high school and it was totally a stalking kind of thing you know <laughs> you know I, <laughs> yeah. you know I just knew what I wanted mm-hmm. and didn't know how to get it yeah and. Uh, it wasn't reciprocated, but we became best friends. I mean, we really, really were super close friends, but I was totally in love with him. And did he? And he didn't kind of really realize not that? Not really. I think he just enjoyed the attention and, and so much that I was doing for him. Mm-hmm. But when I finally did tell him, you know, after about a year or so that I loved him, because I was closely coming to a point of a nervous breakdown, because yeah. I was so in, devotely in love with this one person and could never tell anyone, not a soul, that I had this, you know, uh, attraction mm-hmm. and love for this one boy. And so when I uh, told him I loved him, he kind of said he didn't love me, <laughs> you know. Not in and, that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, or probably in any way after that. Yeah. And so... I went through kind of an emotional change, things like that. But I, I was in college at this time, and I joined uh, and um, the first gay and lesbian uh, student union at Cal State Fullerton when it was first formed. Mm. And what year was that? 1971. That's that's yeah. pretty, and that yeah. was that was pretty, yeah. a pretty bold. I was pretty. I went to Troy Perry's Metropolitan Church in um, Los of, Angeles heard of that, yeah. uh, when it was budding, and it only started in 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told uh, the dorm that I was in at that time that I was gay, and I was promptly asked to leave. Really? <laughs> yeah. And so, mm-hmm. and uh, so, but after I did all that, it, it, things just didn't work out for me. You know, it just, you know, there wasn't enough support in the community or support in my life mm-hmm. for me to um, uh, be the kind of gay person I really wanted to be. And also, I, my life seemed kind of vacant because. I had put all this energy into this one fellow, you know, this one boy, and he was gone, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so my life just didn't seem much. And so I started the early 1970s. A lot of young um, baby boomers and hippies and things like that were also looking for a spiritual kind of path. You know, that's when the Hare Krishna came out and the Children of God and all the mm-hmm. Calvary churches things. And, and Orange County was kind of the center of a lot of this yeah. going on. And... Uh, my spiritual path at the time was Mormonism. I wasn't a Mormon. I joined the church because all the Mormons I knew in college were gay. Well, and so, really? Yeah, absolutely. In California. And, in California. And so I had no clue that the, the church was so homophobic at that time till after I you know, joined it and went off to BYU. Mm. Oh, and that's what brought you to Utah. That's what brought me to Utah. Um, and uh, um, so... You know, there was a part of me that always knew I was still gay, mm-hmm. you know, even though I was trying to suppress it and mm-hmm. think this is just something I'm doing. It's not who I am. I'll get over it. There'll come a time when, you know, this will go away. And, of course, it never did. And I was caught in the uh, uh, a purge at BYU in 1976. Uh, uh, gay students uh, gay, were exposed. Yeah, yeah and... Uh, my uh, lover at that time tried to commit suicide. Mm. 
and um, make a long story short, kind of I was um, I was disfellowshipped. Uh, I wasn't excommunicated, but I was kicked out of BYU. Um, and uh, I still hadn't come to grips. This is the 1970s. And, and even though I was aware of all the gay movement that was going around me, yeah. you know, I, I immediately moved to Salt Lake City and I got involved with U of U. And so I was reading the Daily Chronicle all the time that was always having, you know, they were the only thing in the in Utah that mentioned gay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They were time. quite liberal. Uh, yeah, and progressive. there was a much more progressive culture. Much pro- of, yeah. progressive. Yeah. But um, so I ha- I did marry, um, tried to reconcile still, myself. Still with tried me. to do it. Yeah, yeah, because that was the path if you were going to be Mormon and mm-hmm. come back into the church and all this stuff. And I was promised that once I found a good woman, you know, these, you know, all these silly things would go away and, you know, and everything would be just hunky-dory. She'll cure you. She'll yeah, cure you. Yeah, it would, marriage would be a cure for me, but mm-hmm. it, it didn't. Mm-hmm. And actually, we just became best friends. It's so unfair. All of that kind of stuff was so unfair, uh, not not only to you, but to the... Uh, to the wife. To yeah. the wife that, that Ex- gets married and then the husband is hiding stuff from her and it just... It, absolutely, because, you know, we became best friends. And that's good. You know, because... Um, Still friends? She, um, I kind of let her go, mm-hmm. uh, only because um, she still kind of was hoping that someday we'd get back together. Mm-hmm. I, I truly think when we did separate after 10 years of marriage, we never had children. Mm-hmm. So we were just like best friends. Yeah. And um, she just adored being with me. And because I really was a progressive husband, I let her do whatever she wanted to do. I did all the cooking. I did all the cleaning, mm-hmm. you know. Whatever was mine was hers. I let her go out at night. You know, I didn't have any mm-hmm. of this control thing over her. I just let her be a person. Yeah. Um, but uh, the reason I did come out again the second time was in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. You know, um, I realized at that point that, you know, I was a gay person and that this isn't going to go away. And if I came down with AIDS, it would be a tragedy but if I came down with AIDS and gave it to my wife, you know, I couldn't live with that. I couldn't deal with that at yeah. all. And so the only thing I could do at that point is either give up who I am essentially in my mm-hmm. core being mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, by staying in a marriage or come out. Yeah. And so um, uh, I came out. And, and in 1986, there was not that much to come out to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and so there was basically um, about four organizations that were really uh, visible in the community at that time. And that was the Royal Corps of the Golden Spike Empire. Still around. Uh, still yeah. around after 40-something years. Yeah. Uh, LGSU at the University of Utah, mm-hmm. that was Lesbian Gay Student Union, which I think now they call themselves the Queer Student Union. But there's a, yeah, there's there, a, they're still around. They're still yeah. going around. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Affirmation, uh, which is for gay Mormons, and they're kind of still around. People argue with me, say, yes, we're still around. I remember that. But not around like they were, mm-hmm. uh, where they had a, a, a weekly locational meeting Mm -hmm. and probably the the other one was mcc which was the metropolitan community church here in salt lake city Mm -hmm. and is that where the gay men's choruses uh uh, no not really uh that's the uh where they perform these days is is at the uh, first baptist church on 13th east mcc is the church that uh, uh troy perry had founded and the branch moved here to oh. Salt Lake. You know, a branch of it was here, uh-huh. which was the first organized gay 
organization in Utah was the Metropolitan Community Church. Mm -hmm. And I've always said that's logical because this community does have a spiritual link. And so that it, a spiritual organization seemed logical that it would be the first organization formed. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the community was very, very closeted at that time. Most of them went to the Sun. They went to some of the gay That's bars, a, the bar, the, the bars, sun, and yeah. things. But they didn't come to organizations because it was too risky. Yeah. Um, so. Um, well, uh, I mean, so let me sure. ask you this: you uh, you had said before we started the interview that you were a uh, were a school teacher. Yes. Uh, for how long? For how many well, years? Well, I actually um, I became a school teacher after I came out. <laughs> so I uh, mm. I was working f as in the title insurance uh, for Utah Title, which mm. actually folded up in '88, mm. which prompted a career change. Mm -hmm. But um, um, I came out actually listening just serendipity to uh, or dipious, whatever the word is, uh, to um, coincidentally, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, concerning gays and lesbians on KRCL. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a half an hour program, and I was. Listening to KRCL and grooving with all the stuff, and all of a sudden this gay program came on, mm -hmm. and it shocked the hell out of me so much I turned it down. You know, I didn't want anybody in the place to know that I was listening to such a thing. You know, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I did was listen this at to work? it. Was this at Is that work? work? Uh -huh. You know, because it came on at noon, mm -hmm. and uh, and so I listened to it next the following week and started jotting down some of the numbers that they would list at the end, and I'd call these numbers. And they were all uh, um, like answer machines and things, which I was grateful for because I wasn't ready to really speak to a real live gay person. Mm -hmm. And um, but anyway, I, I did come out at that time. And and you you started teaching school and where would you, where uh, did you teach school? I taught I, my first job was up in Sunset Elementary mm -hmm. up in North in Davis County. Mm -hmm. And then I taught for many, many, many years at Orchard Elementary at the southern end. Now, was your sexuality ever a problem uh, teaching? Always. <laughs> what, but you managed, to you managed to continue your career. Well, that's because I went by Ed Williams and not Ben Williams. Because actually at this time, I was still doing radio program. I, I, I started... Uh, Becky Moss needed a, uh, a co-producer when she lost her... Uh, I mean, a, a co not producer, mm. but host. host. Mm -hmm. uh, when her, she lost her host, uh, uh, Dean Baker, who was going off to the March on Washington in 87. Mm -hmm. And that program meant so much to me for this my is own a, coming out. This is the, the KRCL program yeah, that you had you discovered, and yeah. then and you become a host of I, it. And so within a year, I'm a host of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm a host of it for seven years. And I'm the reason your question is how did I become this historian you <laughs> know okay yeah I mean that's you know, where we're getting yeah. we're gonna get the, there. The, the aspect of it is that I have always kept a journal you know even before I was a Mormon you mm -hmm. know I, there's something historical about I graduated from BYU or even from in history okay. and, and, and that was always my course wherever I mm -hmm. went yeah. you know Cal State Fullerton mm -hmm. or Cypress College mm -hmm. I always had this fascination with history mm -hmm. um, and so I never really did much with it, except for maybe in title work where I could chain property, you know, <laughs> find the past history yeah. of a piece of yeah. property, which was fascinating to yeah. me. But um, I just started keeping re uh, records in my journal. And when I came out, I helped start a lot of organizations because they weren't a lot. And I figure I didn't want to, like, complain and bitch about the organizations that were there. I thought if they're not meeting a need, I will create one myself and then um, 
or help the ones that are struggling uh, and, and become part of that. So I helped start the Wasatch Affirmation in 1986 and became a, you know, involved with that. I started a group called uh, uh, um, Gay and Lesbian, Married and Divorced, uh, no, Married and Divorced Gay and Lesbians, mm-hmm. which unfortunately the, the acronym for it was MADGAL. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, it's yeah. you know, so but and then you know either way it's right probably i mean yeah. that's good yeah mm-hmm. so and then i you know from that you know i went on and started a, a group called unconditional support for gays and lesbians and for so, that, so what you're telling me is you were doing all of this under the name ed ben, no ben, ben williams. williams ben williams, williams which is everybody knows me by and you were a teacher ed williams yeah in and 1988 after i already started doing all this so and so were you uh, so were you kind of, con- I mean, really trying to keep that separate and not let anybody know uh, well, in your school career? The, it was a good cover, in a sense, because I really did try to keep my, edu- my, my professional job separate from my gay activism. Mm-hmm. But I was, a very, I was in the newspaper all the time. I had pictures in the newspaper. I was on TV. So they had to I, know. You know. Yeah. And, and so I, I, the only thing I really stopped doing was having my photograph in the newspaper. Because mm-hmm. I, um, for example, when the AIDS quilt came in 1989 here to Utah, to the Salt Palace, mm-hmm. I was one of the readers of the, the names of the quilts. And that was on television. And, and the AIDS quilt, just for people who may not know, gigantic quilt I forget did it go to all uh, I forget where it was made was it made in all 50 states Uh, well it has it has quilts from all 50 states but it was originally uh, made for to be displayed at the March on Washington in in Washington DC in 1987 Mm -hmm. and and it was um, um, it just bloomed after that and it's so huge now that it can't be shown you know in in one, one place um, and it's got names all uh, on people it, who've died of it. In fact, who died of AIDS. I made the first AIDS quilt here in Utah because mm. um, when I came back from the March on Washington, I met one of the, some of the people that were involved with the quilt in San Francisco, and so I with people here in Salt Lake, we started the AIDS uh, Utah AIDS mm. Memorial Quilt pro- mm. Project, and I thought the only way to get people really interested in is to do the first quilt you know the yeah. first panel mm-hmm. yeah and i did it for a black drag queen mm-hmm. <laughs> who had died mm-hmm. her name was tracy ross mm-hmm. and, and with the royal court mm-hmm. and i never knew her mm-hmm. didn't even know her at all <clears throat> so so you're anyway go to back to the salt palace and your the uh, the aids quilt was on display there and uh, yeah and then so kids at school the next day they said mr williams were you on television last night and i just said well, there's lots of people that look, you know, <laughs> I have one of these generic faces. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always thought if I'm on TV, it's so quick. You know, people can say, is yeah. that or is it not? You know, yeah. but if you got that newspaper, the Deseret News or Tribune right there on the breakfast table and you can stare at it, you can say, isn't that Mr. Williams mm-hmm. who teaches at Orchard Elementary? <laughs> you know, but, so did it ever become a problem in your teaching career? Uh, only once. Um, that it, it kind of did was when Matthew Shepard was murdered Wyoming, there was a, Wyoming. Th- in Wyoming there was a rally up at the state capitol and they had speakers up there and they asked me to come speak on deaths in Utah uh, 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 Utah people that have been murdered for being gay mm-hmm. uh, and so I spoke on that um, and the next day my principal called me in who was wonderful I mean she really did try to protect me but she said that 
some of the faculty were worried if I was going to get fired. Um, and they weren't homophobic. They, they liked me, but they were worried for my job. Yeah. Um, and my uh, principal at that time said, you know, many parents have been calling and asking if, you know, Mr. Williams is gay. And I always say that, you know, teachers' personal lives are their personal lives. But legally, (laughs) you know, there's a thing called moral turpitude. (laughs) Right. You know? Yeah. And so, which, you know, homosexuality, you know, fell within that, you know, Mm -hmm. premise. Yeah, it's considered to be, it was considered, in some cases, still is considered to be a a crime. because Well, it, it can't be anymore. Because sodomy's been legal, <laughs> you know. But when I was doing this, yeah. you know, I was still an, a, a sexual outlaw <laughs> in, in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Wendy Weaver, that brave teacher down in Nebo, yeah, 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 who yeah. actually took the state to court and changed that, that you can no longer be fired anything for your sexual orientation. Well, you know, yeah. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, just said today, and we're going to change that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah there's always going to be a backlash. But, um, yeah, there, so teaching, uh, ultimately teaching didn't really affect things. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught, I told people I taught for three good reasons, and that was June, July, and August. <laughs> and, the, and the reason why is because that's when I really did most of my activist work. Mm-hmm. This is where I could really I, teach. I love teaching, but it was a paycheck, a means to uh, community building. Sure. Mm-hmm. and uh, doing things that I wanted to do in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, spending more time at the old Utah Stonewall Center and, and, yeah. and stuff. So how did you become then? So why did you, I mean, your history is your background, but at some point you really have become the chronicler of, of gay life in Utah. Yeah. Do well, you, uh, hang on, just sure. turn around. Uh, do you guys, anybody want a coffee? I'm going to go get coffee. I'm good with water. I'm fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're just are, are we taking really no take a break? We don't have to take it. We can take a break if you want. It's just cold in here. It is cold, but I'm just, let's just keep rolling. I'm okay. Okay, well, I'm still gonna go. And, get, w- and no. we don't edit any of this shit. Sure. You know, no, we just, <laughs> that's fine. We just go. This so is Ben a and I, professional I'll, KRCL radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ben and I'll just con- continue to talk uh, uh, here, and you go get a. a At least call. you're not on a real to real tape like concerning gays and lesbians was, and so <laughs> Becky would just go back with it back and cut. Yep. <laughs> you should physically cut out pieces. No, I remember. I was, I've been in radio that long. <laughs> I, I remember you use a razor blade and just cut stuff out. Yeah. Uh, so so be you. So you just you've sort sort of sort of just naturally settled into well the I, 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 because i think it's because i was a historian even though i wasn't a you know a professional historian or anything but that's what i had my degree in mm-hmm. i think i had this awareness of what we were doing was historical that what we were doing mattered and that i wanted and i and also because the AIDS epidemic was wiping out such a big portion yeah. of the population at that time, we all thought we were going to be dead anyway. And so we, I thought this is a way to preserve our history after we're gone. Mm. You know, I wanted people to know the her- heroic struggle it was for to be gay and lesbian in Utah in the 1980s and 1970s, especially in the 80s, that not only were we having to fight for our civil rights, we had to fight for our own life. Yeah. And there was no outside help for us. All the AIDS organizations that was formed in this state were formed in the gay community. They were not formed by the state. Right. They were not formed by the health department. Nothing was provided for us 
but what we would do for ourselves. And that's kind of how it was for uh, our struggling organizations. Everything was done because people needed to do it, and they had the fire in their belly to do it. Yeah. There was no money coming in. We were, you know, we were what they called milking the mice, <laughs> you know, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, people paid out of their own pockets for everything. And like I said, I kept a journal. And I had so many meetings going on at this time that with like the Ben Bars of the Utah AIDS ben Foundation. Bar, Roseanne Bars' brother. brother mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Patty Reagan, who mm-hmm. founded the Salt Lake AIDS Foundation. And just, you know, Bruce Barton, who was the pastor of MCC. And anybody who was a leader of any organization at that time actually came to my little apartment that I lived at that time. So it's to strategize. And so I would always write in my journal what was discussed and, and who these people were. And then in 1980, the last of 1986 and early 90, 1987, the Gay and Lesbian Community Council of Utah was formed, which is so unique in the, all of the United States. Really? Why? Because it was a council of organizations who voted on everything that was happening in the community. The community was being built from uh, just actually democratic voting. Um, Leaders of organizations and individual individuals, all they had to do is pay membership and show up. We discussed things, then we voted on it. We started, uh, we took over Pride Day. So Pride Day became a subcommittee. We had, uh, uh, we built the first community center of the Utah Stonewall Center. That was a program. And whenever there was a problem in the community, uh, we could come together real quick. Like when uh, the Anne Frank exhibit came in 1990 and they took out the homosexuals that were murdered. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember this, yeah. And so, uh, you know, we were quickly able to um, do a phone bank and rally because we were organized. uh, it helped me on, and I was a secretary of it, so I took minutes all the time what we were doing on this, but, which, but I was also on concerning gays and lesbians, so I had a format to tell the broader audience what's going on in our community. You know, a lot of this explains, too, why, um, you know, some people say uh, they look at Utah today uh, and the gay and lesbian community in Utah and, and the movement here, and they say, why Utah is such a, a an incredibly strong, vibrant, thriving gay community? How did that ever happen? I think you just explained yeah, how I, that happened. And, and and also, and I'm glad you brought that up because I came out in 1986, and I felt like I had a gift to give to Salt Lake City because I love Salt Lake City. Not crazy about Utah, but I absolutely <laughs> adore Salt Lake City. It's been my home for over 40-something years. I've lived here longer than Brigham Young, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. and, you know, and to me, it's always been gay. <laughs> you <Yeah. know>? and, <laughs> but I knew that I was at a moment in history where that I could go back and find out how we began. Bigger cities can't do that. Yeah. Boise can't do that. Denver can't do that. I can actually document the individual people and the organizations that started in Salt Lake City. And so gay ve- Salt Lake gay City. Gay Salt Lake City. And so very few communities really have that history. And part of that's because we 
have a Mormon culture mm-hmm. here, and we are journal keepers, we're record keepers, you know, we, we bear our testimonies, mm-hmm. you know, we volunteer, we have this volunteer community you know, culture here in Utah, mm-hmm. and so it was natural for all these gay and lesbian people and trans people that were coming out of uh, this Mormon culture to put their shoulder to the wheel you and, know, push along. and push along, yeah. you know, and become modern mm-hmm. handcart people. So, so did you then, uh, as that happened, then uh, you started looking at, at the past, uh, what, what preceded your efforts? Yeah, and most of those people were still alive at that time, so I could actually go and interview them, you know, and mm-hmm. I said, how did this happen? You know, what was these organizations? And, and I actually then had to dig up people. I, I read in the, um, the day, and I spent thousands of hours, literally, you know, figuratively, I guess I should say, mm. it, or truly. No, probably you know, literally. You know, because I would go through the Salt Lake Tribune's old microfilm things, mm-hmm. and I'd go through all those, and most of them were not indexed. Yeah. You know, to pull out information. I went through all the Utah Daily Chronicles and, and kept all this stuff. And I found a woman named Pam Maine that was mentioned in the Utah Daily Chronicle back in 1972 as a, a member of the Gay Liberation f- Front. Mm-hmm. And I immediately had to find this woman, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I did. She was still alive. Still in and, Salt Lake. And then that way I found out, well, she was living up in Bountiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually was able to talk to her and interview her and, 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 and get more detail to find out where gay liberation began in Utah, which to my astonishment started in October of 1969, which meant that the— Stonewall riots broke out in June 1969. Mm-hmm. By October, Salt Lake City already had a gay liberation movement. Mm. You know, I mean, that started by just, was she by her and by someone? her and a man named Ralph Place and a few other individuals. Mm-hmm. It was a small group. They were mostly involved with. Uh, they were bringing in the anti-war movement, and they and basically they attached themselves Kinda to the anti-Vietnam yeah. War movement, mm-hmm. that progressive movement in the late '60s and early mm-hmm. '70s. That you know, um, uh, Earth Day was coming out, the environmental things, mm-hmm. all those things were happening. And but they did march um, in. There was a war moratorium um, uh, protest across the nation in October of 1969. Sugarhouse Sugar Park. They were, yeah, they were everywhere. I and went to it. I was out in California and went to the one mm-hmm. there because I was still in college. But they actually participated in it. So they were like the, like the earliest mm-hmm. um, gay uh, presence. Mm-hmm. That, because before that time, there wasn't anything in Utah. I mean, they were Radio City and the things like that, but there was no organization. There was no community. Mm-hmm. People had their little cliques. They had the, the parks. They had places to visit, but there wasn't any people that said, I'm gay. It's an organized movement. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let, uh, let's go back a little bit before that organized movement, uh, October of 1969. Uh, you've, you've researched as much as you can, I'm sure, and probably continue to research uh, prominent Utahns who might have been gay yeah. or or you know other other aspects of the culture it probably uh, my guess is being a historian you probably looked at police records you see know, who see who was arrested for i ha- i yes <laughs> i was the ar- back to life <laughs> yeah, i was an i was the archivist 
at the old Utah Stonewall Center. You know, we had a library there, which was the largest library west of Mississippi. It had over 5,000 volumes of books. It was mm. major. And at that time, so many things were being donated that I wanted to save them as not to be able to go out of the library. I knew the historical aspects of them. And then I also, people just started donating records from their organizations and things like that to archive. And in 1997, uh, it was a black day in my life where the St Utah Stonewall Center was kind of shut down without my knowledge, mm. and my archives were taken away from me without my permission. And I was so heartbroken over this um, that I had no access to even personal things I was working on that I decided this will never happen again. And so I created a cyber <laughs> you know, archive. Is and, all that stuff still gone? Uh, well, about... About five years after that, a, a man that's deceased now named Jay Bale, bless his heart, he contacted the board of the, the new uh, Pride Center and said, what are you doing with all these archives? I mean, what are you going to be doing with them? And they didn't really know they had them at yeah. that point because, you know, boards change. Sure. And they said, if you want them, we'll, if you can find a place for them, we'll give them to you. And so Jay Bell called me, and he called the University of Utah, the uh, Marriott Library, the, ar um, the archives up there, and they definitely wanted them. Mm -hmm. So he and I went over there on a hot you know, day and pulled all these boxes out. There was 36 boxes of uh, material. Um, so, but it was all saved then? Not all of not it. About, not yeah. all of it. Uh, lots of books, lots of things um, were uh, – see, when, one of the reasons why I was so mad about this is that when I went and I heard the center was shutting down, I went there. The person that was in charge of the center at that time had um, had this volunteer, and bless his heart, I don't blame the volunteer at all. He was just following orders. He was chucking things in a trash can, mm. you know, from, from the archive. What, ha what happened, by the way? What, was there some sort of – uh, there must have been some sort of internal – a disagreement in the gay community? and Well, it wasn't so much, I think, in the gay community as much as the dysfunctional board at the time. The, the, uh, the center at that time was not uh, financially viable. Where was the old Stonewall Center? Uh, people it, remember. It, well, it was originally two places, but the final place was over on 3rd West and 7th South, between 7th South and 8th. There's a cookie shop there. Yeah. Yeah. R the uh, Ruby Snacks. Yeah, or? Ruby Snacks is the actual mm -hmm. place of where the, yeah. the old Utah, Utah Stonewall Center mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, at, at that point, I went online, and Salt Lake Tribune, bless their heart, they were kind of dumb at this point. They, they, put, they had just started putting their archives, their things online. Mm -hmm. And I took off their site everything I f that they ever wrote about in the gay community. Mm. And it was free back then. So that's why I say it's kind of dumb because mm. now you have to pay lots and lots of money to access all this. Mm -hmm. So I took, you know, I found all that. And because I knew so many people, I knew the names of people, I could just plug in their names. And, I w and then I went, the Desert News did the same thing. And theirs went back further to like 1988. So I pulled every, and so now I'm having thousands and thousands of documents of mm -hmm. original uh, uh, newspaper sources, and I thought now I have to go into the microfilm mm -hmm. <laughs> because nothing's yeah. online, and I had to handwrite, you know, 
copy. Yeah. You know, can't, and so that's where I get most of the things before 1968 are going to be police records. Yeah. You know, and you really get a, 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 a skewed uh, view of gay history because it's all uh, arrests. What, what do we know about gay history in Utah? Uh, I mean, the earliest kinds of, you know, and what, what, do, we, what do we know about it? Very little, <laughs> because I mean, we, we so, had Br- Brigham Young. We know had a cross-dressing well, son, but yeah. I don't know if he was gay or yeah. Not. I, I don't really think he was gay or even a trans or any of that. Back in those days, female impersonators were really the rage, and, and you know, in, okay. in Brigham Young's yeah, day, yeah, uh, oh, uh, and across the nation yeah. uh, in Valderville, it, it was considered an art, an illusion for mm-hmm. to dress up and and mm-hmm. be a woman. And so, yeah, many of them probably were homosexuals, but uh, some of them weren't. Mm-hmm. And they always kept it that they weren't. You know, they yeah. always had beards, you know, women that, you know, mm-hmm. acted as things. Um, we, we know some things, like, like um, Heber uh, C. Kimball's grand, great-granddaughter, um, her name was Winifred Kimball O'Shaughnessy, went by the name um, Natasha Ravova. And who was the husband, the wife of Rudolph Valentino, and so uh, <laughs> they they had a whole uh, uh, June Mathis and uh, and Natasha Vavova are from Salt Lake City, and they went out to Hollywood and they they had this whole homosexual lesbian clique in the silent era, and mm. they made and and Rudolph valentino who was at least bisexual you know mm-hmm. was made into this big star he was considered the big, big latin oh, lover. oh he yeah. was the big latin yeah. la- lover you know mm-hmm. women you know you know swooned and you know and fainted and and when he died you know young you know it's like it was a major event yeah but so i mean there were some connections um uh a fellow historian came, named Connell O'Donovan, you might know, heard of him. His awesome, you know, I knew him as Rocky way back in the day. Mm. But uh, he's done a lot of Mormon gay history, and mm. and and he's put a lot of interest and search into um, uh, 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 finding people that were probably gay. Or, mm-hmm. but you know, I ha- I hate putting the word gay on things prior to probably 1950. Mm. Because it is a social con- construct, and they would not have thought of themselves as that way. Yeah, you know? yeah um, I understand. And so, um, but, but there were people that lived together. There were the, you know, lesbians. Uh, uh, there was a woman that went to Westminster College, um, Mildred Berriman. This is my brain disc work once in a while. <laughs> Back in the 1920s and 1930s, she did a survey of all the gay people that she knew in her circle. Really? You know, and, and so um, there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, I mean, so there are, there are things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of was, uh, I got really into the, from the 1940s on, uh-huh. because in the 1940s, Kearns was the largest military base on the west coast at that time Kearns, Kearns? Utah oh yeah. I had no idea there was a military base there yeah because the United States was so worried about attacks on the west coast mm-hmm. the San Francisco Presidio and all them they were all picked up and moved to Utah and that's how Kearns be- began mm-hmm. um, it was the largest military base 
in the West. Mm. And it brought in like 50,000 young men, young horny men, to um, Utah, which made Utah recover from the Depression. You know, well, uh, horny men can make you recover yeah, from you know, a lot of things. Yeah, I guess. But, but anyway, so so that time you start seeing the morals of mm-hmm. uh, of things changing. Yeah. Uh, and in the 1950s, in the 1950s, uh, there was a setback for gay people because the United States started equating homosexuality with not just perversion but subversion. You know, Roy Cohen and all these things that if homosexuality was considered uh, uh, a menace to mm-hmm. American society well, and they could be blackmailed and things. Yeah. And Eisenhower actually passed an executive order that kicked out all known homosexuals from government uh, employee, mm-hmm. which also, I mean, it filtered down to government contracts or anybody else. And gays were seen as now the American threat, you know. And so it forced them really underground. Yeah, it forced yeah. them. And Cleon Skousen. He was the sh- sheriff of, and well, then he, he was the mayor of Salt Lake, and he was a sheriff. He, I don't believe he was ever the mayor of Salt Lake, but he was the police, police chief. Of, uh, police he was chief, the yeah. chief of police in the late 1950s. Yeah. And he made it his mission to have a c- crusade against homosexuals. And so you can find lots of stuff in the papers uh, actually talking about homosexuality starting in the 1950s, which it wasn't really a, 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 t- a, a mm-hmm. subject that you want to address yeah. back mm-hmm. then. But the, the judges start changing things, too. The judges start saying, we need to put these people in psychiatric care, not in prison. You know, because... <laughs> yeah. Cl- yeah. Cl- well, the law said... The, the Utah State Legislature passed a law in the early 1950s saying that if you are arrested for a moral offense, which was homosexuality, you had to go to the state mental hospital to be evaluated and kept there until you could go to trial. And the, the, the state psychiatric doctors had to say that you were not mentally ill before you could go to trial. So that meant that gay men that were being arrested were also being sent to the mental hospitals. So they, were, they had to be mentally ill if yeah. they were gay. Absolutely. Well, that was... That what, was the thought. Well, yeah. not only the thought, that was, that was reality because the American Psychiatric Association in 1952 made homosexuality a pathology. They didn't change that for... They didn't change to, it until 1974. Yeah. And that's because, and that was not because they were nice people. <laughs> it's because gay liberation has fought them and disrupted their national meetings until they thought, well, maybe they're not nuts. Well, I, I always say to people, <laughs> up until 1974, I was insane. But in 1974, <laughs> I regained my sanity <laughs> because automatically they took it away from the American Psychiatric <laughs> Association. If, if, uh, uh, if uh, people are interested in reading about this and really research or, you know, reading stuff about gay uh, history in Utah, uh, I, you've re- you re- write, uh, do you write every week? Well, no. <laughs> um, or for the, month, f- I mean, the, f- the first, well, the first, the first eight years that I wrote for Michael Aaron's magazine, the Q Salt Lake, mm-hmm. he it was a bi-monthly uh, right. thing, and I wrote a column every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Do not know how I cranked this out because I was still teaching and everything else at this time, but I had so much information, it was not that hard to do, and since I wasn't getting paid for it, 
I was just volunteering it, I figured I could write about whatever I liked, <laughs> you know. Sure. <laughs> you know, and so, uh, but since probably about nine, about 2000, see, I'm old, I keep saying 19, since the year 2009, uh, I only been doing it once a month. Once a month, but yeah. you still run, and if, if so, you can people can read all of that stuff. That's all, uh, and it's mostly archived. online. Yeah, it's online. But I also, I, um, I decided because I am getting old <laughs> that I wanted to put. I had tens of thousands of pages of information on my own personal computer, so I spent a year doing a blog called "This Day in Gay Utah History," and I wrote down. I took out of all my archives, and I did this every day, so I was really dedicated. It's <laughs> amazing. And I wrote down everything I had in my archives that occurred on that day. And so, actually, unless you're really, really dedicated, most of the time it's lengthy. You know, each day is kind of <laughs> mm -hmm. lengthy, but you can scan through it. Sure. But I have things, you know, it's mostly relevant to Utah, but I also do some national things that might affect or if things are before the Stonewall rebellions and things like that, then I, you know, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll put some things I think are of interest. Uh, and it's it. and it's this day in Utah gay history. Yeah, and you can and go it's on all Google. Online. Yeah, it's all online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. and I I try to update. I, I stopped doing it in 2014. That's when I finished. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I realized. There's a, a whole crap full of stuff that happened between 2014, <laughs> like gay marriage, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, that. Yeah, and, and, and 2017. Mm -hmm. So I've been kind of going back and trying to up, update it, mm -hmm. um, which keeps me from doing any real writing. Like, you know, like Jim, a book or Jim DeBacchus says he's going to tape me down to a chair until I, make, I write a book. Make you write yeah. a book. But a, a, a younger historian, I call him the Stonewall II generation, uh, Seth Anderson, um, who him and Michael, Anders, uh, Michael Ferguson were the first gay married couple in Utah. Mm -hmm. He graduate, w graduated with a master's in history at the U of U, as Seth Anderson did. Mm -hmm. And um, he's kind of been a little bit of a protege for me because I just gave him everything I have because mm -hmm. I want to keep this stuff sure. passing on. And he wrote a book that just got published called LGBT Salt Lake. And it just came out, I think, in May. And it's more of a pictorial. So it really is great for, I call the Sesame, Gener you know, Sesame Street generation, <laughs> you know, because it's lots of visual things mm -hmm. in it. Because my stuff is really boring because I'm more academically trained. So mm -hmm. I want all the detail. You know, I want every, you know, name, date, places, and who mm -hmm. was sleeping with who, and, you yeah. know, everything in it, you know, because that's just, I'm a nerd. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got excited though when you said there were pictures. Yeah, <laughs> I thought, yeah, well, maybe yeah. I'll read this. Yeah, one. yeah. That's what because, I but he had me go through it to make sure that you know things were pretty accurate and things like that. And he did a wonderful, wonderful job. And I think there's another uh, fellow named Chad Anderson who is in his 30s too. Another Anderson. Another Anderson, and they're not related. But he is um, uh, a historian of sorts too who is doing a documentary on the murder of um, Gordon Church in 1988. Gordon Church was at uh, uh, Utah uh, um, uh, um, Cedar City yeah. uh, young man yeah. who was brutally murdered. And um, in fact, Michael Archuleta is still on death roll to this day for that. that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it never really was covered. 
You know, most people would, his death was so more atrocious than Matthew Shepard's, and yet um, it's, nobody really knows about it because there was a gag order put on it, you know, because they wanted to protect the sensibility of the family, mm-hmm. you know, at mm-hmm. the time and stuff like that. And, and also They didn't want the victim's family to... Well, and, that, and and because I was such a radical, and I am a radical. I mean, I, w- I pissed off a lot of people, and you know, <laughs> and I was not well liked. You seem so nice, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I have no filter, you know. Uh-huh. And, and so, anyway, you know, I was saying, why are these people more upset that their their son might be known as gay than that he was brutally murdered? Yeah, you know, and that was true of Utah culture at that time. Uh, in fact, Seth Anderson was asking me just the other day, he said, how did you know so many of these people died of AIDS, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and when their families were not listing it? Mm-hmm. Right. So what people would lie about? People would people uh, when people young people were dying of AIDS and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the families usually were the ones that put in the obituaries sure. and they'd say died of cancer. Or no, they wouldn't. No. They, they wouldn't list what no. they died of. And they still do this. They say. Yeah. You know, well, they don't say what they died of, but they may. You may be able to divine something in the. I read obituaries; yeah. I find them fascinating. You may be able to divine something in the obituary. They say, "Well, he was, uh, he was taken care of by his close friend, friend. and it's another guy." Or the, the the good clue always for the AIDS one is we'd like to thank Dr. Christian Reese and Maggie Snyder. You know, when you <laughs> saw those two things, you knew right away that you know. Or if we'd like to. Um, thank the the folks at St. Joseph Villa Convalescent Home. Things like that. You knew that, and and um, well, you you get uh, nowadays. I think you get that a lot with uh, suicides. Yes, which now, is such a big same issue. Thing. Yeah, same. It's it's yeah. the People same hide issue. It, it's the, the shame. The They're embarrassed by it yeah. for some reason. And and um, you know s- some of that changes over time. But in the early days of AIDS and things like that, it really was a mystery. Yeah. Uh, in fact. Um, the, the first documented person who died of AIDS from Utah was a man named Michael Painter. And he, he died in 1983. And his son is actually works for the Tribune. You mm. know. And he contacted Michael Aaron and me to want to know if he, we knew anything about his father because he was such a young boy when his father died. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but getting his father's obituary you would never know anything about it you know he was sounded like he was a perfect mormon boy you know yeah you know and and that's half of them and they they talk about oh they went on a mission mm-hmm. they did this sure. which a lot of gay guys do sure you know yeah. you know and they they kind of like i know like, i know guys who went on their mission and that's where they finally yeah. went i i can't do this anymore yeah, but it's like gay is it's just kind of icky mm. so we're not going to talk about the icky part of his life because yeah. it was just an icky part of his life, and we don't want to, you know, ruin his memory or anybody's memory. Yeah, it, it's funny that which you, was his major part of his life and it, who he was. It's funny that you put it that way. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting, and I, you know, I, I'm as a straight man, I I you know that there. I think what people, how do I put this? I think what people feel about about it is you know they may think god he was just he was a wonderfully sweet guy and his his companion was just a wonderful person and uh, and they were great to us and they they were happy and everything but then they start thinking about sex and that's what bugs them yeah 
That's and that's what bugs me about heterosexuals. You know, when I when I, when I have to think of a heterosexual married couple yeah. doing it, yeah. you know, it, it, it becomes kinda, icky. Kinda go, yeah, I, you know, and I used to say like we used to watch uh, uh, um, what was the uh, Six Feet Under. Yes. And uh, and we would talk about it on the radio all the time, and I'd say, God, you know, I love that show, and I love it, you, you know. But I have to admit, I'm a little queasy with boy kissing. Yeah, and and it's just, I don't, you know, and it's not, it's not a prejudice, I don't think, or anything. It's just, it, but it, it, you know, we are who we are, yeah. you know. And the point of being civilized people is that we can accept people who are different from us. And that we can accept the variety of what life really is. And, I th- and one of the reasons why I was so active in this community uh, back then was because there were so many suicides. There were so many people dying and, 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 sh- and f- living in shame. Mm-hmm. And this whole ideal of gay pride is not that we're prideful in a boastful kind of way. We're changing shame to pride. That was the whole thing because... A whole generation before gay liberation was that what we were doing was shameful and that we lived in shame. Mm-hmm. And now we are saying, no, uh, we are a people. We're proud of who we are and our accomplishments. We are different. We're not the same. This is the old gay liberationist in me because I'm not an assimilationist. I don't want to be like a heterosexual. Yeah. You know, the gifts that were given to me to be a gay man would be spoiled if I tried to be just like you mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you would be spoiled if you tried to be like yeah. me, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it's just that we could value who we are. And I wanted to teach the young gener. I never got to love the man that I loved and never touched him, never held him, never got to touch him. I only was able to tell him I loved him. So I wanted a new generation never to have to go through that. And that's been kind of like the reasons why I've been an activist in my life or putting myself out there in life is so that young people can grow up. They're in junior high now and have boyfriends. You know, they go, yeah. they go to proms. They do these kind of things. And all this stuff didn't happen without a struggle. It, you know, and I think it's uh, also should be pointed out in that activism in the 80s when uh, the AIDS uh, and it and it was striking gay men uh, so so you know devastatingly that it would have continued to do that if the gay and I don't know exactly who those AIDS activists were in the gay community but there th- that said we have to clean up our act a little bit here or we're gonna all be dead yeah I the one person that I would like to mention because he just actually. It has been 25 years since he died on July 21st, and his name is David Sharpton. David Sharpton came from Texas to Utah to be an AIDS activist, and he spoke to mayors, to the, to the state legislature. He was a pistol. He was a fireball, um, and he would take no prisoners. You know, he was Dr. Christian Reese's almost favorite patient. In fact, he was the first one that got AZT um, when it was first coming out, David Sh- David Sharpton. In fact, KUED uh, um, Ken Vadoya did a documentary on him mm-hmm. called "Remembering David," um, and I'm sure it's in the archives or files somewhere on that. But he was such a powerhouse that um, it was so. 
you know, he and I were friends, and and it was like shocking when he died. Mm-hmm. Even though I knew I couldn't understand that he died, uh, because he was so alive, yeah. and and I think that was like the thing that we were going through. In fact, I wrote this in my journal at the time. I said to my partner at the time, I said, just imagine five years from now, everybody you know that is vibrant and live and partying and having fun is dead. Yeah. He said, that's what I've been going through. And we were shell-shocked with it. We, that's why we started reading obituaries, going to funerals. Um, and, uh, and actually, many pe- of the older gay men my age, we do have like we call survivor guilt. Because, really? Because we survived it. And our lovers and our friends and the people that yeah. we knew didn't. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like... Um, um, that was what, another reason why I really became a historian. You know, I, that I, I needed to preserve this. You know, I needed to let people know that these people were alive and that they made a difference. And now that they're gone, they were gone in their youth. They were gone in the prime of their life and things like that. And they don't get to tell their story. Yeah. For some reason, I survived it. For some reason, I'm, you know, still negative and God knows I shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and that, you know, and for some reason I survived at that time. Um, and it, it's like, it's, I, that story has to be told. Yeah. And, I, and also I needed to let the younger generation know that they stand on the backs of giants and that, you know, what we did, they can do. You know, whatever Trump throws at us, you know, whatever backlash that comes, things like that, you know, it's not worse than Ronald Reagan <laughs> and Jesse Helms and all these other idiots that, you know, um, where we couldn't even talk about being gay. And yeah. at the time, we were also, con- like, one of the reasons, like, the Eagle Forum and, and Gail Rizika, bless her heart, um, <laughs> one of the reasons why she was able to do so much damage to us is because she always said everything we were doing were illegal. That's why we should not have equality or discriminate, you know, anti-discrimination laws and everything, because we were illegal. Yeah, I I don't dislike you people, but you're breaking the law. Exactly. And that was all taken away in 2003 with the Supreme Court, you know, Texas versus Lawrence, where uh, sodomy in private, you know, consensual sodomy, even though that word probably shocks a lot of people here and the word sodomy, but you all do it, you know, <laughs> just different ways, <laughs> you know, uh, is legal. It took away that stigma yeah. that you cannot fire me. In, in 1974, they took away the stigma, you can't fire me or not hire me because I'm mentally ill, because I'm not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, oh, and I got gotcha. you. Because know, yeah. the APA says I'm yeah. not. Yeah. You know, in 2003, <laughs> almost 30 years later, yeah. they said you cannot fire me or not hire me because... I'm an illegal, what I'm doing is illegal, you know, not a criminal. Do you think uh, uh, people in general, just society in general, uh, uh, is more, we're more accepting? Oh, I think, totally. And I I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, society progresses, small, small increments, and maybe a step back once in a while, but it is always progressing. And younger people, the people that once people started knowing that gay, they knew gay people, yeah, they could never really go back on it. You yeah. know, they once they knew a married gay couple, you know, well, they could. They're nice guys. Yeah, they yeah. And, and and especially the younger generation. In fact, 
the, these friends of mine I, I talked spoke about earlier, Seth Michael and I mean um, um, Seth Anderson and Michael Ferguson. One time they were telling me about all their friends, you know, the parties they were going to. They're very popular people, and I said, "You sure know a lot of heterosexual people." <laughs> and and they said, "Yeah." And I said, "You hang out with them, don't you?" And, <laughs> and he said, "Yeah." And I said, "I don't hang out with any. I really, I don't. I said I don't have any straight friends. Really, all my friends are gay." <laughs> You know, I just prefer the company of it. Mm. But that was my generation because it was like safety. Yeah. We didn't have to filter anything. And that showed me a paradigm shift that had happened in this. This, um, They're not millennials, but whatever generation that is. They're they're now with people who are accepting of them. Mm -hmm. Not that they probably understand it totally. Mm -hmm. And maybe they, you know... um, but they're not going to persecute them, you do know, you, and they're going to have them as friends. Do you think? Do you, uh, do you think we have to be vigilant? Uh, do you think society, uh, 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 gay people, need to be vigilant because uh, of the Trump administration and what you know, the uh, like the, the with no trans people in the military, uh, uh, which I don't think will go anywhere. Well, I I I totally believe this because there is a dysfunctional part of American society that have such a core belief system that they're so right that they cannot accept any kind of tolerance because it kind of destroys who they are as a people and they they actually do see the world coming to an end they do see you know that crisis coming back you know that they they do see these things that this is the end of time, sign of end of time, and they're, and there's enough of them, you know, a population mm-hmm. who want to bring the law. I mean, they see the gay rights movement and even women's rights movements, things like as signs of, you know, we're living in Babylon, you know, and mm-hmm. the only way to clean things up is to get rid of the gays. Mm-hmm. I mean, gays around the world are are being murdered. Yeah. I mean, they're you know, and it's not a far fetch thing to see if we get a a, 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 a fascist um, society in America that that couldn't start happening here. It happened in Germany. In the 1920s and 1930s, the Weimar Republic was the most gay-friendly society in the world. The the, yeah, the, the movie Cabaret. Yeah, it shows that. Kind of but that. The, the Hirschfeld Sex Institute was formed there, and they had the largest library in the world on heterosexual and homosexuality and people were coming scientists and everything were coming to germany for this and as soon as hitler came to power and hitler came to power with brown shirters and the brown shirt people were led by ernst rome who was a homosexual and they were all murdered in the long the night of the long knives you know when hitler went and mm-hmm. and wiped out the brown shirt so that the stormtroopers could take over. Uh-huh. That was basically a homosexual organization. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't know. And that. Uh, uh, not like our <laughs> ones, but it was uh, you know it was hyper masculinity kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. And and so when Hitler came to power, gays had to register in the cities that they lived in. Pink, you know, pink triangle. Yeah. And so the police were able to round them up quickly because they had already been 
registered. And the bars were closed, and they were on it, and then they, they were sent off to concentration camps, and they did have to have the pink triangle. That's where that comes mm-hmm. from. And so a society that was open, I mean, people look at Germany now, and they kind of give it a bad rep, which they deserved for World War II. But Germans had always been very intellectual people, progressive people. You know, um, they gave us science. They gave us, you know, they were friendly to Jewish people and things like that. You know, it was a, it was a, a great country until the fascists took so, over. So you're saying beware. Beware. It can happen. It can happen. Yeah. Uh, Especially if you let your guard down and don't vote. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You, like you did last time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we got it. Uh, ben, uh, terrific talking to you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, look for Ben's stuff, Ben Williams. Look for uh, This Day in Utah Gay History uh, on uh, online, Ben Williams. Uh, uh, oh, you were banned from Facebook, huh? I just wrote that down, and then I forgot to ask you about yeah, that. You yeah, were banned on Facebook? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Why did you get banned from Facebook? <laughs> because there's people that don't like me. And, you know, the thing about Facebook is that people can complain about anything you do. Sure. And they can complain to Facebook. Mm-hmm. And if you get enough compl- – and they don't come back and ask your side of things. You know, they just get these complaints. And they send you out of things saying, you've been banned from s- Facebook for two weeks. You know, blah, blah, blah. And so – and all that time, you're not – you don't have access to anything. You, mm-hmm. in, in this day and wor- age, you feel like you're cut off. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You know, it's like prison. And, you know, like prison. We call it Facebook prison. <laughs> well, I, that happened to me three times within like a month. And the third time, they said, if this happens again, you will be banned from Facebook. You won't be able Forever. to – Yeah. And I thought – I. You know, I, I won't tell you what I thought of the people that were doing this yeah. to me. But um, I cleaned up my act really big time by, on my Facebook. Mm-hmm. I only put down people that I really know, <laughs> you know. Good idea. And, you know, mm-hmm. and people who know me, I keep it small. I only have like 150 people on my Facebook thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not a mm-hmm. media, mm-hmm. you know, whore. whore that has mm-hmm. to have thousands, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that you never heard of. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, um, I'm also doing... It, it's not. Uh, I have also a a Facebook page group that's called uh, Utah Stonewall Society's um, a lecture series, and um, it's I do a, a monthly lecture series at the Marmalade Library, you know, mm-hmm. and but I don't advertise it a whole lot because mm-hmm. I'm in a small room at the Marmalade Library that fits by maybe about seventeen people oh. in a good day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've had like 17 people that's been with me since last September that I'd love for them to keep having a seat, <laughs> you yeah. know. So but don't then, don't but, go to Utah Stonewall. But the the page is valuable because I do pr- put in everything that I talk about, everything I lecture on. I put it on that site after the lecture. Okay. I I put the chronologies. I put every mm-hmm. so. Um, if you just look, search Facebook for Utah Stonewall Lecture Series. Yes. Yeah, you'll find that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ben, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, or well, We've met briefly a couple yeah. of times before, but uh, I've been wanting to sit down with you for a long time and just talk about gay history in Utah. Well, I listen to you guys all the time. I just, you know, for 
not nearly 20 years probably, but you know, when I found you guys, I, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the radio from Hell yeah, the Show. The radio for Hell Show. Is, yeah. You know, I just love it. Well, so, thank you, Ben. So uh, it's the rest of the Utah. Always a pleasure. Uh, we'll have you back again. Uh, thanks, Dylan, for producing the show today in our freezing room here. Yeah, right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, uh, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Broadway Media Podcast Network.